Ephesians chapter 4. We are ready to begin the second half of Paul's epistle, his letter to the Ephesian church. And we've covered a lot of ground, actually pretty quickly, to get here. I know um, some of you have, for instance, read commentary by the old preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones on Ephesians. Martin Lloyd-Jones could stick in a text for a good long while. (laughs) But we have tried to um, move reasonably quickly to, to keep all the thoughts tied together like they kind of needed to be for the first half of Ephesians. Paul has gone to great lengths uh, praising and blessing God for the spiritual blessings which he has given us, indeed every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul has expounded at great length not only on the gospel for each of us individually, but for all of us together as one body, as the church. And he has given us such a high-level view of what the church is. That it is the very holy nation and household and temple of God. Indwelt by God, by the Spirit. And he's taken us from the depths to the heights. He's reminded us that We could have been no lower than we were when God called us from death and sins to life in Christ to be part of this one new man, this one body. And this was God's plan from eternity past that will stretch into eternity future and that will not be thwarted. There there has been so much here that was hardly even scratching the surface what I just said. We've been through a lot the first three chapters. Now... Though Paul will continue to soar to the heights at various points, now Paul is focused more, starting in chapter 4, on, therefore, how should this transform your day-to-day life as the church? And notice, as we will look at the first six verses of chapter 4 this morning, he doesn't start by saying, therefore, here's the list of rules to keep better, or the things to do better in your individual lives. He starts with, therefore, this is how you should live together as one in Christ. Because that is your highest identity and your greatest glory. To be one, the body of Christ. He focuses first on the church as a body living this out. As all the body parts in the body work well together. Let's read verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 4, and then we will dig into this text. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I think the big idea, as you have there in your notes as well, the big idea of this text could be worded as a a command or an exhortation. Recognize and maintain the unity to which we've been called. Recognize and maintain the unity to which we've been called. Addressed, of of course, to these people who are already believers in Christ, who are already Christians. They must recognize and maintain the unity to which they've been called. As we explore the flow of the text, first of all, verses 1 through 3 We see this emphasis on maintaining the unity worthy of God's call. There is a unity that is only fitting, that is worthy of God's call to us. The fact that God has called us to himself in the way he has. So we must maintain the unity that's already there that that is worthy of God's call. How do we do that? Well, 
verse 1 to the beginning of verse 2, first of all, it emphasizes a humble and meek attitude. A humble and meek or gentle attitude. But I'll also mention some things about how he introduces this here as we get into it. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord or a prisoner in the Lord. Paul is, as we've said before, uh, chained to a Roman guard in Rome, the city of Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar's court. And he got there through a long series of circumstances, basically because of what he was doing and taking the gospel to the Gentiles. That's why he's in chains. He is a prisoner in the Lord and for the Lord. He is, he is safe in Jesus, but it is because he's in the Lord and doing, doing what he's been commissioned to do by the Lord that he is a prisoner. Uh, that he is in bonds, you could also say from the original language. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, so this should carry great weight because um, I'm practicing what I preach as well. You know my mission to the Gentiles God has given me. And you know that it is largely through my ministry that your church was established. You need to listen to what I urge you now, what I exhort you to. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, this calling from God, when Paul talks about, in the New Testament, not just Paul, but when the New Testament talks about believers having been called by God, especially in Paul, he's usually referring to what we call the the effectual call, the call which God gives his elect, those he's chosen, as we already saw in Ephesians. And uh, And God irresistibly draws people to himself through the gospel, through the message of the gospel. And so God's call to his chosen ones is effective. It does effectively draw them to the Savior, to Jesus Christ. But as Harry Uprichard says here, the effectiveness of this calling will become evident as they live a life worthy of it. God's sovereignty and grace includes, not precludes, requires, not removes human responsibility. The effectiveness of God's call continues to be demonstrated as people persevere in the faith. But that means we have work to do. Yes, God's plans are never thwarted in bringing people to himself. And then, as we already saw, Ephesians 2, he has foreordained good works for us to walk in. But that means, while never denying God's sovereignty in all this, and his omnipotence in all this, that means... We are called to work. We are called to live a certain way. God's sovereignty and salvation and sanctification are no excuses for laziness, for sitting back, letting go, and letting God, as it were. Walk worthy. Again, clarification that I think most of you understand, but... He's not saying, obviously, the the Apostle Paul, of all people, is not saying you need to prove yourself to God so he'll accept you in Christ. He's already accepted you, justified you, declared you righteous in Christ. This isn't justification by your deeds as far as gaining a status of of becoming a child of God or, or earning eternal life, anything like that. But when he says walk worthy, he's saying you need to put habits into place. Habits which are in accord, which fit with the grace you've been given. Paul says similar things elsewhere, Colossians 1, 9-10. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. That is, since we heard that you came to Christ in Colossae. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk... Again, that, that metaphor, that word picture of how we live, our lifestyle, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
If we belong to the triune God and his name is upon us, we ought to have such a high honor for that, that that we want to live worthy of that God and the call he's given us. Likewise, 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Or 2 Thessalonians 1, 11-12. To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But, back to Ephesians 4, where Paul is going with this here, A worthy walk will be accompanied by all humility and meekness, or all humility and gentleness. All humility and gentleness. Pulling out all the stops. You will need every bit of humility and gentleness if you are going to, together as the body of Christ, walk worthy. You won't just need a little bit of humility on the side. You'll need every bit of it. As uh, Clinton Arnold mentions here, he says, Recognition of our calling by God diminishes our sense of self-importance and enables us to cultivate the humility that is so foundational to unity. God did not choose us and call us because we were so awesome. Our calling represents God's initiative and his unmerited grace upon us. As Peter O'Brien has noted, we are a society of pardoned rebels on whom God has showered his favor. If we really are focused, in other words, on God's call upon us, it'll keep reminding us why we have no right to be proud and why we have no right to think it's all about us. Now, our society, in many ways, even now, is still, it still has so many echoes of Christian truth just baked into the, the fabric of, okay, I'm mixing metaphors, baked into the society. And so our, our society, the way we've grown up, at least sometimes it recognizes that humility can be good, right? But in, in the society in which Paul wrote here, especially the, the Greco-Roman world, the pagan world of that day, Humility was not a good thing. Humility was shameful. It was humiliation. It was not protecting your own honor. Not protecting your own good name. It was seen as letting people walk all over you. But that's what Paul calls these people to do now that they're in Christ and they understand the truth in Christ. Again, someone has said, as it's often pointed out, this word for humility is not a positive attribute in the Greco-Roman world at large. It suggests degrading humiliation or debasement, which was abhorrent in a world where public honor, as opposed to shame, was consummately valued. We even today hear about cultures based on honor or shame, right? That was very much at work there. So humility was usually sneered at. It means you're weak. It means you don't care about your own name and the name of those who are close to you. You have no self-respect. You need to stand up for yourself. If someone hits at you, you hit back at them twice as hard. We have this in ancient letters and writings all over the place. That's how they thought. Those who were in the synagogue, the Jewish people, would have had a little more idea of humility, obviously, as spoken of in the Old Testament. But Ephesus at large, uh, humility was not a good thing. But what is the opposite of humility? If we're not humble, what are we? Well, the world may call it nice names even today, like a sense of self-worth or self-love or self-respect. But those labels are often just 
a nice label for the real opposite of humility, which is selfish, arrogant pride. Selfish, arrogant pride is our natural default as fallen sinners. Because to be a sinner is to be a law to yourself, to be autonomous, to think it's all about you. But Proverbs 11.2, for instance, says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Isaiah 2, speaking of Judgment Day, verses 12 and 17, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Verse 17, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But we who have come to Christ, we've had to humble ourselves. If we've truly come to Christ in repentant faith, we've had to humble ourselves at the cross and say we are lower than the dust before God. We deserve nothing but wrath from Him. But He freely, in His great love with which He loves us, He has freely given us grace in Jesus Christ. He's lifted us to heaven, though we deserved hell. So we've had to humble ourselves already, in principle. And we've looked forward to the judgment day and said, yes, Lord, I deserve to be humbled. And it's only fitting that I bow myself before you and not exalt myself. But then we have to follow through with that in our Christian lives, right? In the everyday stuff. First Peter 5, verse 5 Halfway through the verse, the Apostle Peter tells Christians, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For, and he quotes the Proverbs, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, pride is, even if we're not thinking of it exactly in this way, The way the world really works, pride is essentially us trying to get some glory that belongs to God and take it for ourselves, hang on to it for ourselves. So God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Paul also speaks not only of humility, but a complementary overlapping idea called gentleness or meekness. This is sort of the self-control that humility brings in our attitude and actions towards others. Um, True humility will restrain us from acting in certain unseemly ways towards other people. If I'm not driven by pride, then I can reject the urge to assert myself or be haughty or sharp towards others. A meek person is not a weak person In fact, many people actually are very proud people, but if they're in a weak position, they just know they can't do anything about it. But meekness is not weakness. It is a self-control, a temperance that true humility brings. Meekness is not quick to assert my supposed rights or to put others in their place. It's gentle with people. Not because I'm afraid of them, but because I love and value and honor them as much as I do myself. I love my neighbor as myself. I don't think I'm more important than everyone else here. Even if they're in the wrong, I'm still working for their good. Not just to show them that they shouldn't have messed with me. (laughs) Meekness. Gentleness. And when we, when we act in humility and, and meekness, that's one of the ways in which we can most be, most distinctively be like Jesus himself. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. There's that word for gentleness or meekness. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do we take for granted how gentle and lowly Jesus is in working with us? 
if we understand just how much humility and gentleness is at work in our salvation and in how Christ even now works so tenderly with us, if we really get that, it'll be a lot easier for us to turn around and act the same toward others. Be content to lose face. Forget about demanding respect if you're a Christian. Be content to forego recognition. Let others get the limelight, even if they don't deserve it. Gladly serve others as our Lord Jesus does and did. Meek and gentle conduct is just as essential as I've been mentioning also. It's just as essential when we encounter someone who is misguided. Who should know better. Or who acts like an enemy. Galatians 6, 1-2, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, in the context, not super-Christians, but, but you who are, who are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit... <laughs> should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There's that word again. Meekness, gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Even when someone is caught in a transgression, they have crossed the line. The goal is to bear their burdens. To help them out from under their load of sin. And understanding... I know better than them at the heart of things. It's not that I'm just a better person than them. And that's why I'm not in the situation they're in. Restore them with the spirit of gentleness. That's hard to do, but it's essential. Or 2 Timothy 2, 23-26, speaking of how we interact with those who even may oppose the gospel. 2 Timothy 2.23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, our culture often thinks that any correction whatsoever is not gentle. That's a mistake, a big category mistake they make. But there is such a thing, Paul says, as correcting with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Again, there's a compassion, even for those who are enemies of the church and enemies of the gospel. That's hard. But it's only worthy of the calling with which we've been called and of the Savior who acted this way toward us. Going on to the the rest of verse 2. Again, you'll see a lot of overlap here. Patient and tolerant actions. We have this attitude of humility and meekness, then there have to be patient and tolerant actions. With patience, bearing with one another in love. What is the opposite of patience? Well, and that word for patience, um, it was kind of built out of words that communicate you're slow to anger, you're long suffering. (laughs) Long suffering, patience. What's the opposite of that? It's anger. As one person said, anger is damaging to relationships within the Christian community. It is all the more so when it it intensifies to rage, bitterness, slander, and a spirit of vengeance. Paul repeatedly warns the readers against these. He lists later texts in Ephesians. The antidote and corrective to this danger is the cultivation of patience. And he talks about how it means long-suffering, like deferred anger. (laughs) You know who is often spoken of as long-suffering in the Old Testament? God himself. That's where we often run into this word. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy and steadfast love. So God has treated us this way. He still treats us this way. He's still slow to come down on us. Not because he's 
this permissive grandfather in the sky, but because he is good. He loves us. Do we love others as he has loved us? And so if we are patient as God is patient, we will bear with one another. Really, that word means put up with each other in love. Not put up with each other until we see our first chance to exit. No. Put up with each other in love. Forbearance is the idea. We refuse to treat people as they, as they may sort of deserve. <laughs> We're going to treat them in love. Now, again, uh, so this time, S.M. Baugh, he says, The walk characterized by all humility and gentleness is easy to project in a vacuum or when surrounded by admirers and friends. My wife often laughs at me because she remembers her warning me before we got married. I kind of, I have a temper sometimes. And I, and I honestly, naively said, well, yeah, I'm not sure that I really have much of a temper. But then we got married. <clears throat> it's easy for a bachelor to say that. Just keep all the irritating people far enough away and live on your own. You don't have to live with someone and you're basically doing everything your way. But, but similarly, if you are around a lot of people, but they all agree with you, they're all on your side. They all tell you what a great guy you are. It's easy to be long-suffering and forbearing then. But continuing with what S.M. Boss says here, but now Paul gives shape to what genuine humility and gentleness looks like when they enter the crucible of real life in the church. Patient forbearance with one another in love. Um, he talks about how th- this word for bearing with one another means to endure, bear with, put up with. And it particularly refers to patiently tolerating someone who is difficult or foolish. He says one can easily tolerate a mildly irritating personality. But patience is especially needed for the foolish or difficult brother or sister in Christ. If you haven't discovered this yet about yourself and others, I hate to break it to you, there's some pretty messed up people here. We all are in our own way, but we all sometimes go really off the rails in our sin. We still have sin. You're going to run into this in the church. Something that sort of comforts me and rebukes me all at the same time. You look at Matthew 17, for instance, where Jesus sees how his disciples have bungled things with the father who brought his demon-possessed boy to be healed and so on. And even Jesus expressed amazement at how much forbearance his disciples' spiritual bungling required of him. And Jesus never sinned, but he even, even sinlessly, he just exclaims at one point. Matthew 17, verse 17. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I, here's our word, how long am I to bear with you? Bring them here to me. He didn't cross the line to sin, but Jesus got frustrated with his disciples. Not sinfully angry. Not petulant with them. But even he sometimes had to just sigh. (sighs) How long do I have to put up with you guys? (laughs) And work with you? If even Jesus experienced deep frustration with the twelve apostles, why do we want to give up on a church when we encounter that, that kind of frustration? I shouldn't have to put up with this. These people should know better. Right. Jesus put up with his disciples in love, but it's too much to ask that you put up with your fellow sinners and still love them. Bearing with one another in love. 
Again, Clinton Arnold. Paul here urges his readers to have an attitude of love in tolerating the faults and the sometimes grating personality quirks of others in the church. Or S.M. Baugh, unity in the church, unity in the church may be secured by the bonds of peace, verse 3, but the links of that ironic chain are forged out of love. If we're going to have the bonds of peace, it's going to be built out of love, he's saying. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, where Paul again writes, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We go to verse 3. Diligent and spiritual peace. Kind of rounding out the picture. Diligent and spiritual peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That word translated eager is really more of a participle, like a verb. Um, It doesn't just mean you're trying to do this, you're attempting to do this. It means you're using everything in your power to do this. Or to be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation. You pay careful attention to maintain this. You go out of your way to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Holy Spirit has already given us the deepest unity imaginable, as we've just seen. First three chapters. Let's maintain that unity. We're not creating it out of nothing. We're maintaining it. Let's not sell that unity so cheap or trash it so easily. Paul uses very interesting wording when he says, maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This word for bond is related to the word for prisoner in verse 1. Paul was in bonds, in shackles. Likewise, peace should tie us, should bind us to each other in the Holy Spirit. As we were just saying, blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. We must diligently walk in the Holy Spirit And thereby we maintain the peace that our selfish inclinations will resist. This is an active peace. It's not just, they're leaving me alone, I'll leave them alone. You're eager to maintain this peace. It's an active peace that goes to war with the works of the flesh and finds true peace, not in our own private individual conceits, but finds true peace together at the foot of the cross. And only that carefully cultivated peace can maintain true spiritual unity in the church. When we have our eyes off of ourselves, or our supposed goodness, when we recognize our own sinfulness, and when we stay in our minds together at the foot of the cross. Now, verses 4 through 6, we've made it through the first half here, maintaining the unity worthy of God's call. Then that leads Paul to say we simply need to recognize the unity created by God's call. This isn't something we're dreaming up, something we're just imagining to be true. It's the deepest reality of all for us. Recognize the unity created by God's call. And he You'll see, he mentions each member of the Trinity here. He's drawing an analogy between our unity and the unity of the triune God himself. Harry Uprichard says, As God is one, so also the church is one. The unity of the church can no more be vitiated, can no more be taken apart, than can the unity of the Godhead. So verse 4, One body and spirit and hope. In English, we fill in the verbs, but it's more like, in the original, he just starts saying, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You're one. 
As Paul has been saying all along here in Ephesians, we are the body of Christ. There's only one. And we're all indwelt by the same Spirit of God. It's not a fiction. It's the truth. Don't fight reality. And it it seems like he's even sort of uh, painting the picture for us just as we as human beings only have one body, we also only have one spirit. <laughs> but there's also, just, just like that, there's one body of Christ with one spirit indwelling it. That's the Holy Spirit. It's not like I have the grade A Holy Spirit and your problem is you, ha- you have the Holy Spirit that you got somewhere out at Harbor Freight or something. We have the same spirit. Clinton Arnold says, this Holy Spirit marks believers as God's property and is a deposit on their future, there's a big word, eschatological inheritance. And on the last day, what they will inherit. Thus, Paul speaks of the one hope believers eagerly anticipate. Here, he's referring back to all Paul has told us about the Holy Spirit. He is the deposit. He's the guarantee of what we will inherit one day in Christ. Earlier, um, earlier in chapter 1, Paul had prayed that they would understand by the Holy Spirit that they would know what is the hope of their calling. <laughs> but now he says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, he's referring back to that same thing. And he also has said in chapter 2, once they were without hope. Now they possess hope because God has graciously, graciously reached down to them and called them to be his own. You have one hope that belongs to your call. Treasure that. You used to be without hope when you were all doing your own thing. Now you're together and you have one hope together. Don't throw that away. We have one hope. We all have the same glorious destination. Eternal life and fellowship with the triune God and with each other. We're gloriously stuck with each other. And we should be motivated by the same promises too. If we have the same hope. No matter how much the other person in church is irritating us, we should be able to call ourselves back at a basic level, even if we can't agree with them on everything call ourselves back to the fact that we have one hope. Verse 5, one Lord and faith and baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Obviously here, as he goes through the members of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus is being referred to. He is Lord. He is the one Lord over all, as Ephesians 1 told us. He is exalted over every other authority in heaven and earth. But this is also the same wording which the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles would have recognized from, for instance, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. The Lord our God is one Lord. So, by the way, Paul is saying Jesus of Nazareth is God himself. He shares this identity, title, and authority with the Father. But we have one faith, then, since we have one Lord, the Lord Jesus, we have one faith, one common body of truth in which we've together placed all our trust. This is how Paul often speaks of the faith, is that body of what we believe. And one baptism. And I think I agree with Clinton Arnold when he says Paul's confession of one baptism here probably indicates, excuse me, probably indicates the rite, the ceremony, as well as all that it symbolizes. Um, All that you see drawn together in Paul's writings about the Holy Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ, as well as the outward manifestation of that in water baptism. All that speaks of us being dead to ourselves, alive in Christ, 
one with the body of Christ, baptized into the body, all of that. More emphasis on unity. And verse 6, one God and Father of all. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now let's pause again, because this isn't the main point, but it's an important point. Thinking again of the unbelieving world of that day and of our day. When we say things like this, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In Ephesus of that day, that would, that would sound so self-focused. Really? Your God's the only one? So intolerant. You dare say my gods aren't gods? Scandalous. You're rejecting the gods your family has worshipped for generations. You're saying there's only one God? People hated them for this. It would have, done, it would have been much easier if, if Jesus, or even the triune God, if you will, were added to the pantheon of the, the larger group of the gods as more gods to worship. But no, they were saying there's one God and Father of all. Just recognize that's always going to be an unacceptable message to a world that will have other gods, that will be idolatrous and worship the creature rather than the creator. But here Paul is stressing the unity of the church, God's household, according to Ephesians 2 and 3. The unity of the church rests in the unity of God's redemptive fatherhood. We're all one because we all have the same father who gave us life. We all have the same DNA, you could even say, as those born of God. All believers have the same father. He is the authority over all of us. He says he's over all in this context. I I tend to agree with those who see the all here as referring to all in the body of Christ we're talking about. Especially because the emphasis is on God's fatherhood, which, which is only true in this sense, really, if we've come to God through Christ in the gospel. But he is he's the authority over all of us. He's at work through all of us, and he lives in, within all of us by his spirit, transforming us to reflect his glory. So remember that in how you treat fellow Christians. You are God's child, but so are they. They have all the rights you do. Even if they don't share all your views or make all the best choices. Even if their church doesn't have the best confession of faith in your eyes. If they cling to the same Lord and gospel as you, and that's essential, but if they do cling to the same Lord and gospel as you do, treat them with dignity and care as a child of God. And remember also that you're not their heavenly father. You parents who have more than one kid, probably know what I'm talking about. Sometimes your kids have to be reminded as they interact with each other that that they are not dad, right? We need to be reminded of the same thing. Don't take that role upon yourself. You are a sibling in a household. The father may give you certain tasks and delegated authority within the household, but you're still just a fellow child with other Christians. But once you start putting on airs, getting ideas in your head, well, I'm the oldest. Well, I'm the smartest. Well, I'm the best behaved, not like you people. Then the unity starts to pull apart. You're just a fellow child in the household. Be humble. Be meek. You're stuck with your brothers and sisters Don't resent that. Love them. Well, we've gotten through the text. Now let's see the force of the text extended. Let's let's press in on a few of these concepts before we're done.
This last part won't take nearly as long as the first part, but we do need to hone in on a few things still. First of all, true and false ecumenism. Do you know what ecumenism is? Being ecumenical? It's sort of being able to, to cooperate with those outside your little circle, especially in churches. Um, being ecumenical is going across church lines and being able to, at some level, cooperate in some way. Get something done together. There is true and there is false ecumenism. True unity within churches and among churches cannot be forced. It's often faked for a while. (laughs) There are ecumenical movements that attempt to unite those who do not, in fact, have one Lord and one faith. Who are not, in fact, part of the one body of Christ. And so there may be outward organizational unity, but it's a shameful sham. This text should remind us of that. Remind us of what true spiritual unity and unity among churches and among Christians is. Evangelicals and Catholics cannot be together in church matters. They don't hold one and the same gospel. They do not have one faith. We cannot ecclesiastically cooperate with the cults. Why? Because they proclaim and worship different gods and lords. That would be a lie. Not working with the truth. It should also go without saying that we are not one with all monotheists, for instance. We don't just confess one God. We confess the triune God. One Spirit, one Lord, one Father. Judaism and Islam may claim to be just like us sometimes because they believe in one God. That doesn't mean they believe in God as he really is, as he's revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. So we need to have the sort of approach that we see godly Israel taking under men like Ezra. In the book of Ezra, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, I'm sorry, this is before Ezra's time, Um, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, that was the high priest, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. We alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. If you know the bigger context there, some of these people who were actually enemies, they, they claimed to worship the God of Israel. But they weren't really worshiping the same God at all. And it showed in their worship. And in their hostility to God's true people later on as well. But they wanted, for whatever reason, they wanted in on this temple building business. They wanted an outward show of unity. And Israel said, no, you don't worship the same God. It's not true. This is not... What we're doing for God is not something you can be a part of. That was only right. So that's how we should respond to false ecumenism. But there is, on the other hand, there is a good and right ecumenical spirit among true churches and true Christians. We are a Reformed Baptist church. We hold to the substance of the 1689 Baptist Confession. But our foundational identity must be that of the Christian gospel. We are a Christian church first. I am not a Reformed Baptist first. I am a Reformed Baptist. I hope you are too. (laughs) Because I think it's true. But I am a Christian first. God forbid we should ever get that backwards. 
That doesn't mean that we lose parts of the precious truth we have seen in Scripture that leads us to be a certain way as a church. Not at all. But what's our attitude like towards those who don't see everything exactly the same way? Do I need to remind you of Jesus' prayer on our behalf as his body? John 17, starting in verse 20. Praying to the Father, he says, I do not ask for these only, not just for the twelve, minus Judas Iscariot. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, as even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You say, well, of, of course, but we'll never be perfectly one till we are all glorified together. So why try so hard now? Really? Really, we should long for that day and long to see that worked out even before then as much as possible. Do you lovingly pray and work for the success of the entire body of Christ? Or are you mostly suspicious of other churches and Christians? How easy do we make it for Satan to divide the universal church and the local church, for that matter? Is our basic stance toward other Christians one of love and peace, even if we disagree? Or is it one of condescension and bickering? Do we actually hunger for better fellowship with all true churches and believers? Or are we smugly satisfied to be loner churches or loner Christians? If we are one, and we are in Christ, it's going to change your approach to differences. It doesn't mean the differences will be erased. It doesn't mean we stop being careful to obey God for ourselves as we understand the word. But it means we love our brothers and sisters wherever we find them. We work with them as much as we can, individually, In many cases, maybe that means we can't cooperate as local churches on things. But we can still have fellowship informally with brothers and sisters. Don't turn up your nose at people who don't have it all figured out in your eyes. When you run into another Christian, even if they're not of exactly the same stripe, but you can tell they understand and love the gospel. When you run into them on a plane or in a restaurant... Are you overjoyed? Or are you like, oh. (laughs) Too bad you're not like me. (laughs) No. I think most of you know what I'm talking about in that instant bond in Christ. And I want to encourage you as far as I can in the Lord. Well, not to lax too eloquent as a preacher here. Second and last thing to to focus on reflecting that oneness in christ do we have spiritual or fleshly conduct are we driven by the holy spirit in our unity or are we just fleshly acting like people in the world do with all their cliques and all their little divisions let me read something a little longer here from clinton arnold he says in this passage paul speaks of the importance of cultivating humility gentleness patience, tolerance, love, and peace. Developing these virtues is an important aspect of what it means to make every effort to maintain unity within the church. Conversely, we must rid ourselves of those characteristics that hurt our brothers and sisters, make them defensive, or create a spirit of tension within the community. Practically, we should carefully examine our lives in light of the following considerations. And he gives some bullet points. If we're, if we're quick to get angry, we need to work on patience. Are you quick to be angry? Does every little thing just set you off? I'd love church if it weren't for the people. 
If we have a tendency to be proud, arrogant, egocentric, and boastful, and who doesn't struggle with these, he says, we need to work on humility. If we are insensitive, bullish at times, rough, bossy, or quick to impose on others, we need to work on gentleness. If we struggle with being intolerant with the shortcomings of other people, we need to work on bearing with one another in love. If unity among fellow believers in our local churches is not a priority for us, we need to make it a priority. If the ardent pursuit of unity between churches in our cities is not a priority, we also need to make this a priority. He says, to close close this out for him, he says, Carnality is the problem that drives most situations of dissension and leads to church splits. Our own egos and immaturity can easily inflame a situation and make it much worse. What may begin as a resolvable issue can become an enormous and seemingly irresolvable conflict simply because of the ego investments of the participants in the dispute. End of quote. Let me close by referring you to what Paul said to the Philippians. chapter 1, verse 27, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. He reminds us that to have the peace of Christ with each other, we have to have the mind of Christ toward each other. Philippians 1, 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A few verses later, verse 1 of chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ did this first. And it has been revealed to us what his mindset was when he did it. And if we're going to have the peace that only he can create in the church, we have to have the mindset that is uniquely ours in Christ. This won't be natural. This won't feel like the easy thing to do. Sometimes people will even say it in in hyper-spiritual ways. I just don't feel at peace about that. (laughs) Meaning, that sounds hard. This will not be natural. But it's the mind of Christ. And it's the only way for us who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we all bow ourselves before you, confessing that we have all badly stumbled in all these areas before. Because to be a sinner and to have remaining and dwelling sin is to be very self-centered. To have huge egos. To be proud. Arrogant. That's who we all are apart from Christ. Within us, that is in our flesh, dwells no good thing. Please show us in new ways, though it may hurt, Show us where we are not doing right in this way or where we have failed in the past, where perhaps we need to 
confess this to others and to you. But Lord, we know that when you reveal these things to us, you do it for our joy and your joy in us. We know true joy is found only when we forget ourselves in Christ and we bear with one another in love. And we trust you to work out the details when it doesn't feel like we will get what we need when we do that in the church. Help us for Jesus' sake. Lord, if we want people to be attracted properly to the gospel of Christ, we certainly need to adorn that gospel, that message with our lives. Please don't let us get in the way as even unbelievers see how we are proud, arrogant people or angry people. Help them to see the mind of Christ at work in our lives. And therefore, may they see your glory in the gospel, which has transformed us already. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.